as I'm speaking right now, the last C-17 U.S. military aircraft has left the airfield in Kabul, completing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, a saga which began in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks and 20 years later is at an end. Not the end everyone wanted, not the end anyone expected, but it's the end. 122,000 people have been airlifted out of the country, roughly 6,000 of which are American citizens. 250 are still unaccounted for and believed to be seeking an escape from the country. I'm sitting here with my friend and co-host, Brad Palumbo. We're going to talk this over, and then we're going to turn to a conversation I taped last week with author and economist Abigail Hall Blanco. Her new book is called Manufacturing Militarism and focuses on the cultivation of pro-war attitudes in Americans left, right, and center in the post-9-11 world. I spoke to her along with Fiona Harrigan of Reason about the book in the context of the ugly evacuation process playing out in Kabul. Now, I just want to note that conversation happened just two days before the suicide bombings that killed 13 service members working their hardest to save lives at the airport there. I want to note that important piece of context for the timing. Brad, we are at the uh, the moment that was planned, I, I suppose, last year when the, the early dates for evacuations, or not evacuations, withdrawal was set. August 31st, the deadline happened. It's surreal for me because, I mean, I was just a little kid when we went into Afghanistan. This is the first time in my living memory, really, certainly my adult life, that we've not been at war in Afghanistan, that we've not had troops on the ground, that we've not been dropping bombs. Um, and, and it hasn't really sunk in for me. And I'm seeing this reaction from a lot of young people, Gen Z, millennial. It, it, is it really over? It almost seems I, like I hard to believe. It doesn't feel to me like it can be over and that it really is. And and that's not like to make a, a judgment on whether or not that's right or wrong. We are still doing airstrikes, and rightfully so. We've hit now, I think, two different operators from ISIS-K, the ISIS cell that operates in the region and in and around Afghanistan as payback and also um, retribution for the suicide bombings that happened at the airport. Seems like there's going to be more. That always does come with innocent casualties as well, which is part of the problem of the entire Afghanistan occupation to begin with. Certainly, but I mean, I wouldn't downplay the significance of not having boots on the ground. I, I, it is it is remarkable. And, and as much as I give Biden grief, and he deserves so much of the grief for how he has mismanaged this really badly, I mean, he did this. Trump said he would do it. Obama said he would do it. And this war that we've been in for years and years, that we've lost over a trillion dollars, that we've lost thousands of American lives to prop up a failed regime that collapsed in like a day once we stopped supporting it. Basically, a, a massive failed experiment in nation building that cost us uh, countless American lives and, and blood and soil. And he finally did it. And I give him some credit for that, even though it's gone quite poorly in the implementation. And thousands upon thousands of Afghans in the region who also died yes. in those suicide bombings last week by ISIS. I mean, this has been the theme of the entire story. This has been one of those areas where Bidenism, you know, his sort of like stubborn 70 or 80 year old approach to everything where you're not clear if he really has a grasp on the situation or if he's just being like really diehard determined on an issue to get us out of Afghanistan. I don't know how to read this president on the way that he has handled the entire thing. I do credit 
anybody, though, who can go against the will of the Pentagon and the military establishment to just keep this thing going in perpetuity because you know that's what they were telling him. You know that's what they wanted. And the way it was done was really haphazard. I think it was frankly incompetent in a lot of ways. But in the long run, getting us out of there, I think the benefits of that could could outweigh many of these costs. And it might go down as a very chaotic period in his presidency, but he did do something other presidents didn't, and he did go against that grain. My big concern, though, with the way Biden approached the whole issue was that he seemed very naive from the beginning. He didn't accept the fact or realize that the Taliban were going to take over, and so he didn't yeah. plan for the you know having to get American citizens and What's Afghan allies out What's the hubris thing? It's just, it's just like... It's our hubris about these situations over and over and over again. The entire occupation of Afghanistan and the idea of rebuilding a government there was just sort of built on this idea of our prowess as nation builders, as a military power. And we know now, after we should have learned it in, in Vietnam as well, that like you can't just be somewhere and force your, your presence onto other people and that they're going to have you remodel their entire society. Yeah, it um, seems like Biden did the right thing but was probably one of the worst people to do it in the sense that he's been wrong on most foreign policy things throughout his career. He had this extreme hubris and optimism about what Afghanistan would look like after the U.S. left. I think we needed a much more pragmatic withdrawal strategy. Um, And it seemed like this was more political than anything, his party and, and his base. Well, I think the politics part of it is important. I mean, Reuters ISPIS just put out a new poll just the other day kind of tracking how Americans are feeling about the withdrawal process. I think it is it is fair to say that a broad majority of Americans have been eager and supportive of a withdrawal of our forces in Afghanistan. That started to get put under pressure, particularly after the suicide bombings that happened last week that killed 13 uh, service members, as well as a bunch of Afghans. And I, I think that Americans just constantly want everything to be like neat, tidy, and they kind of keep coming back to honor. Like Jonah Goldberg in in The Dispatch keeps writing about like the issue of honor and the Afghanistan withdrawal. And it kind of just assumes that there is going to be a way in which any of this is honorable for all sides involved. Um, I didn't believe that the Afghanistan occupation was an honorable enterprise to begin with, going after Osama bin Laden was, um, but still being there, like there's not going to be a version of withdrawal that makes people feel good about it. And Americans, they by and large, like they want it to be that way. Um, the poll was completed just before the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan, and 49% said the U.S. military should stay in Afghanistan until all American citizens and Afghan allies have been evacuated. And 25% said that the U.S. forces should remain until all U.S. citizens can leave. What do you think about that? Because like right now there's 250 unaccounted for who have expressed an interest to leave. Um, but my concern has been if we keep troops there any longer and there's one firefight with some Taliban fighter, one guy, then you're going to have the U.S. respond the way that we always respond, which is going all the way back in. Yeah, and I understand what you're saying about this was never going to be a clean withdrawal. It was always going to be messy, but it didn't have to be this messy. And it didn't have to be this poorly done and this haphazard. And the question, the polling, it's almost to me backwards because it's, it's nuts to me that we didn't do that first. 
that we didn't get American citizens out before we started drawing down the troops. That would have not been that difficult to do. And so I'm They'd receive bulletins. They'd receive notices that like to right, start this evacuation the that we've been doing the last few weeks should have been done months ago. Yeah. It should have been done months ago. And then we wouldn't be having these conversations because, like you said, the polling everybody wants to end the war in terms of the public outside of DC and some political circles. But People don't really approve of the way this has been done, and that's because it is unconscionable to think that we're leaving U.S. citizens behind. Whether leaving troops there, could that turn into perpetuity maybe? I, absolutely, that's a problem. But it is unconscionable to me to think that we're leaving some U.S. citizens stranded in Afghanistan as the Taliban are taking over. Yeah, no doubt. And this is probably as good a time as any to transition over to a conversation that I had last week with Abigail Hall Blanco. She's an economist and author of the new book manufacturing militarism. I had her as well as Fiona Harrigan of Reason here on set to talk about her book and how to reorient, or if you can't even reorient, the American public away from a, po a pro-war posture in the post-9-11 world. We're going to cut to that conversation now. Abigail, um, I've been really enjoying the book so far. Thank you for taking the time to chat today. I wanted to ask you to start. When our country is at war, or our government is is sort of, you know, going through like the, the post 9-11 period, there was this initial drive to respond and invade Afghanistan. It was very strong. It was unifying across the country. And it makes sense to me. But how do you turn everyday Americans, everyday people, for example, like a mother of three with a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere in the American South, not physically threatened by terrorism, jihadism in the slightest, into vocal proponents of never-ending war with an unclear objective where they know people are dying every single day, both American military and people they've never met in countries they've never been to. How do you do that in your population over the course of time? So the argument that my co-author and I make is that you do a couple of different things. But one of the things that you mentioned right after 9-11 is you stoke fear. So fear plays an very important role when we talk about propaganda, not just within the context of the United States, but within propaganda in democracies. Uh, fear does a couple of different things. It opens the door for government to expand in terms of scale and scope. So things which were no longer or which maybe would not have been permissible before become permissible afterward. Um, and it also... Uh, allows for this just continued type of intervention over and over and over again, because there is always some kind of threat that is just around the corner. Um, as you mentioned, we do a really good job uh, in terms of if we are the U.S. government in making people afraid, regardless of where you are. Say, so how do you keep that up over the years when there are, you know, leaks of information reports of things that run counter to the public perception of these conflicts? So there are a few different important things there. One of the things that we bring up is that within the context of defense and national security, there is essentially a monopoly on information. So government is really the exclusive source of a variety of pieces of information. Now, you mentioned things like leaks. So maybe you have a whistleblower or maybe a uh, 
a journalistic report here or there. But by and large, government is the one who is able to control the narrative. And in a lot of cases, when you see these other types of reports come out, since government has this monopoly control, they're able to effectively say, well, that information is outdated, or that information doesn't mm-hmm. give the complete picture, and so on. And in your book, you sort of use as the lead the Afghanistan papers as sort of the quintessential post-9-11 example of a long-term propaganda campaign perpetrated by the United States government and sort of supported by the media establishment in this country, whether wittingly or unwittingly, because, again, that monopoly on information part comes into active play. How are you else are you going to get you know insight on how the war is going in Afghanistan unless you talk to Pentagon officials? And it seems like they actively misled for years, and they did it systemically. Yes. So when we talk about war, so the war in Afghanistan is how we preface the book, but we spend quite a bit of time talking about the war in Iraq. And you're absolutely right that one of the things that is critically important for this discussion is that when you're talking about media reporting, the information that you're getting is coming through the government. So when it comes to talking about the war in Iraq, for example, we talk about the uh, process of embedding journalists in conflict, which from my understanding, I'm, I'm not a journalist by trade, is highly controversial because if you are with the people who are physically responsible for your safety, you're unlikely to offer a particularly critical take of what it is that those individuals are doing. But even more than that, we see things like talking points that are being crafted by members of the Bush White House to be put out into mainstream media. You have uh, information that is being uh, sent to Uh, large newspapers, for instance, that then officials are citing as being the original source, whereas the original source was actually the White House itself. Or you have things like the Bush administration putting, quote unquote, unbiased experts in the limelight on major cable networks, uh, whereas, in fact, they weren't unbiased experts. They were individuals who had been supplied by the by the Bush White House. I think the the point that you make there about sort of the the government playing the middleman in one, like giving information, of course, on like war efforts abroad, but then also there being sort of a self-consciousness about how to report on military activities by the media because they are so close to them in many cases. That connects right over to one of the main cruxes of your book, which is the aspect of paid patriotism. And this comes in the form of pop culture, sports displays, movies, and sort of how the government utilizes those sorts of mechanisms to activate propaganda methods, right? To control the message. Like when a movie studio needs to shoot in a certain location and perhaps use an Air Force base to do it, uh, they end up having to go through the U.S. military's processes on what the movie is about, what's in the script, all sorts of other instances. Can you unpack that a little bit for folks? Sure. So in the book, we talk about a few different cases. So I mentioned already the the war in Iraq. We talk in detail about the lead up to the conflict, but then also, too, we talk about what happened afterwards because there was a big change in narrative after the war started than before. But we also talk about things like the TSA. We talk about paid patriotism or propaganda in sports. And then we talk about propaganda in film. So when we talk about paid patriotism, for example, what do I mean by that? 
Uh, back in 2012, there was a minor scandal, and I say minor because it popped up for a little while, but then pretty quickly fizzled out, which basically it came out that the Department of Defense had paid major sports franchises. So think in particular uh, the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, uh, Major uh, the NBA, and so on, that the DOD had paid these major sports franchises to engage in patriotic displays. So think about surprise homecomings or members of the National Guard singing the national anthem, full field flag displays, and so on. Um, these things were not genuine displays of patriotism on the part of the organizations that put them on, but instead had been bought and paid for by the DOD. Uh, my co-author and I argue that these millions of dollars that were spent for these various displays um, were intended to just foster this broader culture of militarism and support for the war on terror. This is similar to what it is that we see when we look at propaganda in film. And you mentioned, I think, very succinctly the process, which is that the DOD will provide sometimes at reduced or uh, free of charge various uh, pieces of equipment, locations, personnel, and so on to film studios in exchange for a say in the editorial process. Yeah, you want to use so if you're trying to make a <laughs> <laughs> you want to use the attack right. helicopter for your movie, then you can have it, but. <laughs> Right. But it, they do it in exchange for a say in the editorial process. So we document cases and we draw from literature that has looked at this in pretty extensive detail. You see things like entire characters that get scrubbed from films or entire plot lines that are completely altered or otherwise just jettisoned. Um, and this presents a problem in that if now you want to make a competitive movie that has an element related to war, you pretty much have to get cooperation from the DOD in order for your film to be competitive. But the individuals who are responsible on the DOD side have been very, very candid that they do not provide support for films which are critical of the U.S. military. So if you want to make a film that is thoughtful or, God forbid, critical of what it is that the U.S. is doing with respect to foreign policy, you find yourself fighting, no no pun intended, a really uphill battle. Kind of to play devil's advocate, I, I suppose. You know, over, over the past year, there have been a lot of interesting foreign policy developments, a lot of, you know, steadfast support for the withdrawal from Afghanistan, repeal even in Congress of military uh, force authorizations, that sort of thing. And I'm kind of curious if with this declining support for military intervention among normal Americans, if that stems from kind of a decline of the things that you talk about, whether that's patriotism, whether that's militarism, you know, my friends on the right would say that the left is not patriotic anymore. Yeah, it's one of those yeah. things like, yeah, right, you, you hear about like the NFL paid patriotism. Right. The NFL is like the front lines today of where they say like wokeism yeah, is running exactly. the show. Right. So there's a little bit of a disconnect Right, there. and I kind of wonder how that plays out just moving forward with the tactics that you've mentioned that have been used to, to propagandize and push propaganda. So it's a really good question. And one of the things that we talk about and in the chapters, we try to be careful in detailing that these processes that we talk about are by no means new. They may look different within the context of the war on terror, but these 
pieces have been in place for a very long time. So the connections, for instance, between the Department of Defense and sports franchises, those go back all the way to World War One. With film, this goes all the way back to the early 1900s, believe it or not, with the film uh, The Birth of a Nation, which we all know now was supported with cadets from, from West Point. So these dynamics are, are far reaching. Um, they change over time. They adapt in order to meet kind of whatever the needs are of those in charge at the time. The the point that you raise about people pushing back, so like withdrawing their support from being in Afghanistan, for example, is, is a good one. We talk about how to potentially counteract propaganda in the last chapter of the book. And we highlight four different things. We point out the problems with relying on some of these mechanisms. But the last one that we bring up is the ideology of the citizenry. So what is it that individuals are willing and able basically to, to put up with? What do the citizens deem as being acceptable or unacceptable? And we really put that as being a critical piece of kind of being inoculated yeah, against and, this Yeah, and that is because you, you talk early in the book about, and I think this is, this is where the part of the name of the book comes from, manufacturing militarism is, is I, I suppose, a nod to manufacturing consent, a criticism of mass media affiliated with Noam Chomsky, which is just basically that they don't try to push messaging that is completely at odds with the public's perception of the war abroad or military threats, they create messaging that meshes enough with people's pre-existing perceptions, and then they try to morph them and move them around the margins to create a sort of feeling that there is public consent for said action. And then when consent dissolves, that's when you have the problem. Yeah, so one of the things that we do in the book is we identify not only the functions of propaganda, but also the tools of propaganda. And you're exactly right that what we do is we point out kind of the the standard tactics that are often used. And these are things where if you read about a quote-unquote American ideology or an American culture, so that's taking America as being a, a homogenous unit, which... Is, is problematic, but, but people do. Thinking about things like patriotism, uh, appealing to authority, appealing to an us versus them mentality and things like that. And so you do see that these types of propaganda pushes, they latch on to things that people are already inclined to. And then also, too, to, to bring it back to something we mentioned earlier, um, not underestimating the importance of fear and that crises play. So yeah. what a lot of people have forgotten kind of at this point, because we're 20 years now on, is that after 9-11, a lot of people were really afraid. And there was this really big, broad support for going abroad and for stamping out terrorism. And so where this started may look very, very different to, to where we are now. But it was something that, and we can look at polling data from the time, you look at Iraq, for example, there was pretty broad support 
for military intervention. And, and Abigail, one of the things really I want to ask you about that, that that broad support is is like there's there's these really fine lines between the word militarism, right, and patriotism. People have you know warm and fuzzy feelings about the idea of being patriotic, but the the question is what is that patriotism being deployed as an ends for? And militarism, as sort of outlined in your book, it takes the form of weird, subtle things in the culture. You talk about in Major League Baseball, when they consciously started making a pivot in the post 9-11 era towards talking about different plays that are made out on the field as like being like strikes or, you know, having things uh, framed in military language like this. This person was just, you know, bombed by this other player. And they, they start changing the way that they talk about it. And it's it, you see it start to creep into the culture, this militaristic mindset, this pro-war mindset, and they start framing teams like they would framing foreign forces doing combat. It's really insidious, but it just seems like it's one of those things that it happens almost organically because people want it to be that way. You see it happen this way with the, the war on the virus, right? Just even having like COVID-19 be framed as a war on X, it, it sort of excuses government action on that thing because we're fighting a war, aren't we? So the sports piece, I think, is really fascinating. And there are a lot of people who've written extensively about uh, war and sport metaphor and the meshing between those two. And so you're absolutely right that one of the primary functions of doing things like, say, you're playing football and you're referring to, you know, bombs and blitzes and uh, other military terminology is it then you have that mental translation from, well, we hear this kind of thing in a game of football, which is, although I know some people may feel very passionately about their teams, is low stakes. And then you take and you translate that into the foreign policy scene, and it makes those two things seem equivalent to each other. So now foreign policy looks like a game that we would consume for entertainment on a day-to-day -day basis. The other thing that that does, because it goes in the opposite direction as well, it doesn't just get people used to the idea of, of conflict in, in a game-like scenario, but it effectively collapses really complex foreign policy into something as simple as a football game where the rules are very, very simple. We know how this is going to go, generally speaking. Um, and people then come to expect the same thing from foreign policy. And so I agree with you that it's remarkably insidious uh, how it is that this happens um, in of the consequences are severe. Yeah, and it's, so just, we identify it's just even the framing of winners versus losers. Right? Like everything in US media is about who's winning, who's losing. And the war on terror in Afghanistan, it's it's not necessarily a question of who's winning. There's effectively the elimination of any kind of gray area. So if you think about sports within the context of teams, there is, as you pointed out, the winning team and a losing team. But it's not just the winning team and the losing team, it's our team versus the other team. And you're either with our team or you're with the other team. 
and we don't like the other team. We don't want the other team to win. So you start to then see this within, say, a context of something like the war on terror is that you either are a supporter of the U.S. and their policies or you're not a supporter of the U.S., in which case you've aligned yourself with, if you want to look at the language that was being used, you're aligning yourself with, quote unquote, the terrorist. So there's absolutely no room for any kind of thoughtful discussion or any gray area at all. There was this point that really took me, and it's it's tied to this manipulation that you talk about. Just, you know, you... My understanding is that you argue that, you know, this this kind of manipulation erodes you know, government by citizen consent, and that the simplification is essentially, I don't know, it's it's corrupting our democratic process in some sense. And I would be interested to just hear how you you link that simplification and that that manipulation and how that ties into how we participate in government and what we can expect from, you know, a democratic regime. So one of the things that we think about when we talk about democratic governance are those checks and balances on government. So in an idealized scenario, you do have those well-functioning checks. So citizens are able to vote politicians into office or vote politicians out of office if they don't do what we want them to do. Politicians are supposed to be able to discipline bureaucrats who don't perform their duties effectively. But this is predicated on the ability to get the information necessary in order to be able to uh, use or wield those checks on government. And it also implies that you have the ability and the incentive to act upon that information when you get it. In reality, though, we don't have this what we call symmetric information. So, the information that people in government know is different than the information that citizens know. What we argue is that propaganda makes this really problematic because it effectively adds a further impediment to people getting the information that they would need to effectively determine what it is that government is doing. When you go into the space of defense and national security, this is particularly problematic because now you have not only uh, this normal kind of disconnect of information that you would see, but now it's compounded by layer upon layer of secrecy and that monopoly on information that we talked about earlier. And so in the short term, this is problematic for a couple of reasons, but in the long term, the implication is that this effectively erodes those checks and balances on government. Yeah, and I think you just also, at some point, it's a, it's a war of attrition with the people. You know, the TSA stands out as one example to me of a, a, an area where you would expect that most Americans would have never consented to what they go through at the airport um, in the early onsets, uh, or I'm sorry, like later on in sort of the period of the war on terror. If you look at what we go through at the airports, I don't think people even understand anymore why the TSA does what it does or even have a grasp of the the level of failure that they endure on a weekly basis with keeping illicit items, unsafe things off of airplanes, and yet they persist. And it has to be because of a very calculated piece of messaging that the government is always putting out about why you need the TSA at airports. I'm not certain that we do it all. The TSA example is really interesting. So you see the creation of the TSA after the 9-11 terror attacks. And of course, kind of the impetus for why you would have seen the TSA created is, is fairly obvious and straightforward. But you point out 
exactly what what the case is. Is that the TSA really doesn't do anything to keep you safe. Uh, in fact, we argue that and we're not the only ones that the TSA is a prime example of what's referred to as security theater. Uh, it looks really good, but doesn't actually do anything. They fail their own exams in terms of intercepting potentially dangerous articles, something like 80 to 90% of the time. So they're remarkably inept at what it is that they do. Um, and a variety of the security procedures that we go through, and we talk about these in detail in the book. So things like removing your shoes or restrictions on the amount of liquids that you can bring in <laughs> uh, and going you, through body you- You've never flown without the TSA before in your no. entire life. <laughs> like that's that's just kind of shocking to me. I, yeah. I do remember the before times. Good ten years of taking flights before you had to go through any of this kind of invasive stuff. Right. That's that's shocking. No, my parents tell me about when they used to walk up to the gates with their their family members. You know, and that just being a common thing. And now we've all been routinized in in this this. Well, we've process. been we've been like corralled into just thinking that the airport is a dangerous place mm-hmm. and that people around us are up to something. All the people who are in line with you on the airplane, they could be up to something at any time. And it just sort of creeps into your mind in all aspects of the way that you live. It's on the subways. It's if you see something, say something. Right, the unattended baggage. It's, it's always suspicious. God, I, I reported an unattended bag the other day oh at the Washington Monument. It was <laughs> creeping me out. It was placed against the Washington Monument. It had been there for like 15 minutes and I started because I was sitting right next to it and I was like I'm uncomfortable I'm gonna go speak to an adult and I go right to right to law enforcement there's a bag over there and then I walked away from it and I was like man I'm the problem they've done it like they've gotten they've gotten into my head I'm nervous about nothing and of course it was nothing yeah, and so we one of the things that we don't go into in, in tons of detail is the see something, say something program, which is a trademarked uh, piece of information, by the way, that that slogan is that's been shopped out. Um, and the thing that you bring up is interesting because what the example that you just brought up was the intended effect is that people now get freaked out. Um, in reality, though, is that we're not security experts. So what you wind up getting then is a bunch of different people who don't know anything actually about what a real threat looks like versus what a threat doesn't look like reporting all kinds of stuff. Um, and what this effectively does is actually divert the attention of law enforcement from things that are actually serious to just a bunch of stuff that winds up being superfluous. But you really hit the nail on the head here and you're saying like, ooh, I see this bag. I have this thing in the back of my mind. Or when I go to the airport and I'm walking around and all of a sudden now I'm suspicious of everybody else. That's one of the intended effects is to get people to be freaked out and constantly on edge that there is some kind of threat that's lurking around every corner. But one of the things that we point out is that the data simply doesn't support that. You're remarkably safe when you fly, for instance. And if you look at the period before 9-11 and the period after, in terms of terrorist attacks, they're indistinguishable from each other. Um, You're more likely to be killed by a dog than you are to be killed by terrorists. Um, And yet, that's not the narrative that we've come to internalize. And the reason that we think differently is because of the information that we're constantly being bombarded with. I believe it was the Cato Institute that they wrote that you are more likely to be killed by your own clothes uh, than foreign-born terrorists in the United States. Uh, <laughs> you can find that on their website. It, it kind of made me chuckle, but it's it's true. Uh, we just sort of swim in this fear and anxiety 
all the time. And it is how you get a 20-year war on terror where everybody is scratching their heads going, I'm not even sure what I'm afraid of anymore exactly. But I'm just sure that having you know, men, women, and boys overseas fighting on my behalf is somehow keeping me safe. you enjoyed that conversation with Abigail Hall Blanco. Her new book, Manufacturing Militarism, is out now. You should pick it up. It is enlightening. Brad, I want to turn to you now because you are working on a new project here on Right Now to help build out the channel and expand some of the work that you're doing here besides just co-hosting. Can you tell us a little bit about the new video series? Yeah, so I guess to, to start, the kids are not all right. Steven, I don't know. Most, <laughs> most people, um, th that's the thing that most people aren't following what's going on on TikTok or Instagram reels or these things that millions and millions and millions of young Americans and young people across the world are using every day and getting so much of their information and their news and their culture and their commentary from. But outside of the people actually participating in those ecosystems, most people don't really have any line of sight into them. So this series, Brad Reacts, basically I'll be going through some of the craziest and cringiest and funniest political content uh, on these social media websites and different platforms and apps and showing it to the viewers so that they don't have to go through uh, and sort through those platforms themselves. Well, I know TikTok is sort of ground zero of 14-year-olds doing rants and dances about how anything that people might need to survive must inherently be free. Like there's like a really strong streak of sort of socialist content uh, on TikTok. Definitely not a surprise to me given the age group that primarily uses that. Are you going to be focusing on some of that kinds of content? Yeah, absolutely. The first video will all be about socialist TikToks. And a lot of the audiences, you know, 13, 14, 15, but a lot of the creators are actually YouTubers or TikTokers who are uh, in their 20s or, or it is older sometimes on the content creator side. And they're just pushing things straight out of the communist manifesto, right? Like Karl Marx has a whole fan base on TikTok. It's That's remarkable like, how open. many of these like teenagers and preteens seem to just like know who Karl Marx is and talk about the Communist Manifesto and Mao's Little Red Book as if it is like part of their subculture and these are currently living celebrities. Yeah. It, this, it's bizarre to me how this happens, but that's the nature of the internet. <laughs> right. And uh, the funny thing is they're not even coy about it. They're literally like daddy marks, hashtag communist, are hashtag they Should we take them seriously though? Like it, are, are they being A cheeky? lot of it is a little bit tongue in cheek, but the I, but also like true. I mean, everyone does this right online joking about things, but also you kind of believe it. And I would say that they definitely play it up on these social media websites, but there also are like actually making arguments and points about private property and about capitalism and about markets and wage slavery and other things that are straight up communist arguments out of the communist manifesto. So the seriousness of some of this stuff that's percolating through young people's minds and their screens is is actually pretty significant. Yeah, I, I hate to like be a scold and, and you know have a, a down attitude about people just kind of having a good time online and engaging in sarcasm uh, throughout their entire online presence, but like. I kind of saw how things went dark on like Reddit, for example, with right wing humor and people on the right at a certain point, you have these inside jokes that you make amongst one another. Everybody kind of feels like I'm joking. Are you joking? Yeah, he's joking. Definitely. We're all just kidding. 
But then eventually somebody in that in that cohort is not kidding, and it becomes harder and harder for that group of people to realize when they're just now parroting a thing because it's part of their culture, it's really ugly, uh, and it's not a joke anymore. Like I think this yeah. is a big part of how the alt-right came to be, uh, was just sort of like the memification of the online right. And at some point, it became a danger and a threat to, I think, the free society. And these kids uh, who are yucking up uh, all of this Marxist content, it seems to be the same kind of thing. Right. But it won't be just, you know, drab and dry and serious. Some of the videos are genuinely funny. I mean, some of these content creators on there are hilarious and make fun of themselves a little. And we'll be doing that, too. So it's a, a fun series, but hopefully we'll have some substance. And more importantly, it will give people a line of sight into what's going on in these digital empires they're not even aware of. You're going to be doing a video every week? Yeah, once a week. Just head to Rightly. Obviously, make sure you're subscribed right now, and you will be able to catch the video every week on this channel. All right. That is YouTube.com slash RightlyAJ. That's our show for this week. New episodes are every Thursday, so hit that subscribe button so that you can catch our show and also Brad's new series as well as that of Gothic. She's got a new one called Cancel This on our YouTube channel as well. We're across social media at RightlyAJ, so that's Twitter, that's Instagram, also TikTok, and we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, always ask why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. We'll see you next week.